You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. We appreciate you joining us today. We've got a lot to cover on today's program. If you've been taking a look at the commodity markets this morning, particularly on the grain side, you'll note that grains are up, corn up five to six, soybeans up 20 to 28 cents here in the old crop wheat. Also some finding finding some green on the screen. And this is on the hails, the heels rather, of a big rain event that moved across the corn belt. We're going to talk with Eric Snodgrass of Nutrient here in just a moment about why we you're seeing the grains move up on today. Then in segment two, we're going to dive into the hog market with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. Got that quarterly hogs and pigs report out yesterday from USDA. Dennis is going to bring us up to speed on how that changes the equation is in the hog industry. Jeff Johnston will join us in segment three with a look at what's going on for digital divide funding here in rural America. And then we're going to wrap up the show with a look at what's expected later on today from the USDA. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's check in with Eric Snodgrass of Nutrient. Eric, yesterday was definitely an interesting weather day across the Corn Belt, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it started in Colorado and finished in Kentucky. So that was a pretty rough go of it. And we're adding up this morning. We've seen now uh, we're approaching 600 reports of severe weather out of yesterday's derecho event. That is something else, uh, Eric. This this weather event we saw yesterday, you mentioned, spanned the, the vast part of the middle of the country, spun up early in the morning, definitely brought some rain totals with us. Can you fill us in on the good news from this storm event for yesterday? Who got what in terms of rain? Yeah, I mean, we saw rain hit parts of I-80 over Nebraska that have been dry, it hit northern Missouri, southern Iowa, and then hit that midsection of Illinois, which largely for the last about 50 days had been missed. And so some places in there got an inch to three inches. Some places the storms blew through and did, did a lot of severe uh, weather, but gave less than a half inch. And unfortunately, there were some hail and tornadoes in there. But overall, we saw that this may be the very beginning of, of what we would hope to be a pattern shift that gets us away from this continued drought development. So there's a lot of folks there that said, all right, I took the wind, but I was just happy to get the moisture in place. And you just think about it, Mike. I mean, the Mississippi Basin, remember back in December last year, how dry things were after last fall. The river was 12 feet below low stage down in Memphis. It went up to flood stage. Now it's back down to five feet below low stage again. So packing moisture in the midsection of the country is going to be great for the hydrologic health and the crop health in that area. Well, that is certainly good news for those folks who have been watching this dryness develop for the past two months, Eric. But of course, yesterday's event came with that deluge of wind. Fill us in on the derecho impact. When did you notice the wind start to accelerate and how widespread was that wind damage from yesterday's storm? Yeah, it was really widespread. I mean, it really got going once uh, the storms began to build over northern Missouri. As soon as it hit the Mississippi River, there was a very well-defined what we call bow echo. That's where the leading edge of the storms looked like a hunter's bow drawn back with a with an arrow. And uh, then it just raced across central Illinois, uh, and it hit a pretty wide swath. I mean, this particular damaged swath, I think when we measure it end-to-end, we'll be looking like seven to 800 miles uh, in total. And along the way, produced, like I said, nearly 600 reports of severe weather, most of that from wind damage. But yeah, this hits some uh, key acres. I saw, of course, when you look at social media, you just see a lot of the pictures of the flattened corn. You see a lot of the hail damage, uh, but the wind damage was quite prolific across that area. And there are still hundreds of thousands of people without power, given uh, how how vulnerable a lot of the tree structure was at this time of year to, to being knocked down by these winds. Absolutely. So now that that rebuilding commences across much of that, a lot of these growers will be watching to see if that corn can gooseneck its way back to upright. Eric, you mentioned, though, this could be the start of a shift. As we talk today, we've got more rain falling across at least central Iowa here. How how big of a shift are you expecting to see in the coming weeks uh, with these forecasts? Well, we're still missing a critical piece, which is the Bermuda High. The Bermuda High is left. It's over near Europe at times. It's gone to Africa. If we had the Bermuda High in place, you and I'd be talking today about shutting the rain off. It'd be so much. And that's the moisture pump out of the Gulf. So what helped us here was a big ridge built into Texas. Now, in Texas, it's been 110 to 115 degrees in south central Texas. But over the top of that is where the action is. So we still have better than a 90% chance stretching across Nebraska all the way to Ohio of grabbing another inch of rain as the next few systems roll through. And this also brings in good rain this weekend into uh, Iowa. 
this is, I mean, this is it. This is what we needed to see to start to get this drought to break because there have been some places in the Midwest that have had the driest last 50 days when looking back throughout all of our history, going back 131 years, it's been the driest 50-day stretch of weather that we've got. So we needed this in order to avert a disaster because a lot of that crop's going into pollination, especially the corn, of course, and we needed that moisture just to get into the ground. And so it is coming in there. There's still multiple chances in the next two days here of getting more severe weather in those same areas, and we're going to have to watch it carefully. So it's, it's you know, it's the good with the bad. And I mentioned this yesterday, you know, drought never breaks gently. So this is the beginning of it, and unfortunately, it came in with a lot of severe wind. Eric, of course, you publish your weekly weather outlook there at Nutrien. And on this week's uh, outlook, you were looking at precipitation totals over the past uh, several days. And I noticed Missouri had been just a darth of moisture. They hadn't seen anything in quite some time. I'm wondering, A, if that's one of those areas that is in the, the very substantially dry uh, points of its history. And also, B, is there the potential for Missouri broadly to catch some moisture over this weekend? There is. And, and that's quite good news because you're 100% right. Missouri, I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about Illinois and there's been talk about Iowa, Michigan, these states that have been closer to the Great Lakes Basin have been so dry, but we cannot ignore the fact that Missouri took the heat and the drought earlier than the rest of those states. And unfortunately, it's still another scorcher in central Missouri all the way over to St. Louis, where today they're going to try to get it back up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But there are storms coming, and that's what we want to see, because that will bring in the cooler weather, that brings in the cloud cover, that brings in the relief. So Missouri is in that stretch of better precipitation. But, um, you know, with any summertime thunderstorm regime, there will be places that get missed. So we're going to have to do a real close assessment about July 15th to say who made it through this time period with adequate rainfall and who's still hurting. But overall, I'd say there's a lot of good news with the moisture, but probably some of the market movement this morning was just on the damage. And don't forget, the northern Corn Belt is missing out on some of this as we go forward in this forecast. Oh, that's a good point. Eric, how far north do you have to go for this moisture potential to shut off? Yeah, parts of uh, Minnesota, parts of the Dakotas, they're still a bit too far to the north to get the good rain out of this. And there's some heat still in that place. But we think back and say, well, wait a minute. A week ago, they got all the rain. So did they have enough to kind of survive this? More than likely they did. But if we continue to see drier conditions there, I'll start to worry about that. And I've also been talking to my friends in Canada. You get up there into the Canadian prairie, canola is about two weeks early. Uh, and so this is the wrong time of year for them to go hotter and drier, and we're seeing that. And don't forget, we still actually have fires in Quebec and fires in parts of British Columbia and Alberta, and that's still making air quality issues across the U.S. And what's interesting, Mike, is that don't forget, there were fires in Mexico, too. So both of our neighboring countries have been contributing their smoke to the United States here over the last several weeks. Oh, boy, things to watch for there. Eric, before we let you go, looking out for this potential of increased rainfall, are we also going to see hotter temps across the core of the Corn Belt? Yeah, that's a good question. In the near term, the heat stays south, and that's good. That's not, that means we're not going to have a couple 90-degree days, but what we worry about is the 97 to 105. And the good news is I think most of that's going to stay out of the Corn Belt as we get the pollination. All right, maybe some good news, maybe see some green return to these crops across the Corn Belt. We've been talking to Eric Snodgrass, meteorologist with Nutrient. And Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, you bet. Folks, stick with us. Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services will join us here on AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? 
Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're turning our focus back to the protein sector. We've seen fireworks continue in the cattle business. We've also seen the hog industry turn around from where it was just one month ago, at least on the futures market. What's it looking like in the real world? Well, joining us now to discuss is Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. Dennis, yesterday you had the chance, I'm guessing, to take a look at that quarterly hogs and pigs report from the USDA. Were there too many surprises for the trade? Well, I consider the report negative to the front end of the market, uh, supportive to the uh, 2024 contracts. Interesting, the futures market's kind of trading just the opposite of that, but uh, that's, uh, you know, the futures market reaction to reports is oftentimes very confusing, but uh, the report is negative in that uh, the pig crop, Mike, the uh, the spring pig crop was a uh, hundred and one percent of a year ago on less sow sparrowing and that was because the pigs per litter was up three percent so i guess i consider the the, the numbers of pigs ready to market here uh, between uh, now and fall uh, as a negative surprise on that report Oh, wow. Yeah, I would certainly anticipate that 101% on a 3% larger pig crop. Dennis, as I think back to the World Pork Expo here at the front part of June, there was a lot of concern that we were just a little oversupplied on breeding stock throughout the country. Thoughts were that we were going to see breeding stock, sow closures happen. Did any of that get reflected in the report? Or I guess, what does breeding stock uh, look like for our hogs and pigs? Yeah, well, the breeding herd is uh, just slightly lower than a year ago. Uh, now, there are indications that the sow slaughter is beginning to increase rather substantially, but this is all coming into effect after the survey was taken. Uh, this survey is effective uh, June 1st. We are expecting uh, increased uh, sow slaughter during the course of the summer and right into the fall time frame. Now, this was reflected in the farrowing intentions, which was uh, 96% for your fall farrowing and winter farrowing intentions. So uh, that is definitely reflective of the uh, substantial losses 
incurred by the industry. All right, Dennis, and you mentioned the way the market reacts to reports can sometimes be a little counterintuitive. We're seeing the front months move up today, deferred months moving down here in the lead hog complex. But I'm curious, just on these summer hogs, Dennis, would you mind for folks who are outside the hog industry, what's happened in the futures market for summer hogs here over the past six weeks? Well, we've seen a, a, a scramble for, for product to move and ship into California ahead of this uh, silly Prop 12 uh, law that becomes the law July 1st. So what's happening is uh, they're, they're, they're buying product and shipping it into the state. As long as product is within the state border by July 1st, it can be sold within California from now until the end of the year. Uh, and that has been driving the, the wholesale pork prices upward. It's uh, it's short term and it's all artificial in my opinion. And uh, w when the bubble bursts, and in my opinion it will, uh, I think you're going to find yourself with uh, uh, the marketplace flooded with pork, and you're going to see this cutout value uh, turn sharply lower. Uh, as the industry makes the adjustment process to the uh, Prop 12 provision. Dennis, as we think out longer term, and I know the rules and, and regulations around Prop 12 will be coming out piecemeal here over the next six or eight months, but would you expect to see an entirely separate cash market wholesale retail price develop for states that have laws like Proposition 12, or will we still be able to maintain the, the conventional sort of cash reportage that we've relied on in the hog industry? Um, well, nobody seems to know. Uh, my sources are telling me that the, uh, the premium offered by the packers to, to, uh, to sell compliant raised pigs is simply not a high enough premium to justify doing the change. In other words, uh, I'm told by my producers they require as much as 18 to $20 premium uh, per pig per head in order to justify uh, the, the top 12 uh, regulations. And uh, I'm also told that they're, they're offering about a 9 to $10 premium. So they're simply not going to do it. They are not going to comply with Prop 12. Uh, so there is going to be a transition here where, where product in California is going to virtually disappear. And, of course, the problem is that leaves more product uh, for the rest of the country to absorb. That is a great point, Dennis. And my curiosity then extends into these deferred months here in Lean Hogs. We've got the front months. We've got July and August up into the 90s, October at 78, December at 74. Given that risk that's out there, 78 and $74 in the fall, are those hedging opportunities for hogs here? No, I would not be hedging the hog market. You're going to be locking in a loss, and I simply would not do it. All right. So we will find more buyers. We'll find some more optimism here for hogs as we get deeper through summer, you're thinking? Well, yeah. Once you get past uh, the, uh, say, late end of the fourth quarter in the next year, you know, I have to believe that the, uh, the, the numbers are going to drop off because the industry is going to be uh, moving guys out of business. We're going to be calling these sales aggressively. So, uh, simply from a, uh, a uh, production standpoint uh, and a uh, possibility that, that the Chinese may need pork sometime early next year, those are the two, uh, two uh, possibilities to, to drive the hog market higher from a long-term perspective. All right. So we've got some bullish potential there in the hog market. May just have to get through these political uh, transitions domestically here before we can see that rock and roll. Dennis, of course, while we've got you on the show, you have been a, uh, a very close watcher of this incredible rally here in the cattle complex. You've been very bullish to the cattle market more broadly. We've been here you know, three weeks kicking around at record or near record territory. Dennis, is the consumer still willing to buy this high dollar beef at the grocery store? Yes, they are. There is no indication that uh, we have a problem with the U.S. beef demand. Absolutely no indication. So 
the consumer uh, is working. Unemployment's extremely low, and uh, beef is uh, for sale and it is being moved at the retail outlet. I've got to imagine, Dennis, that is going to keep you fairly bullish here on live cattle prices. I know and I believe the December contract is kicking around near life of contract highs. Looking out later this summer into the fall and winter, are cattle, do you still see some bullish opportunity in the futures markets? Well, yeah, I'm still quite bullish in the live cattle market uh, and uh, looking for the, uh, the deferred contracts to continue to crank in the new all-time high territory. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere close to a conclusion or or, or to a, a top-out situation in the live cattle market. Well, that's exciting. Dennis, do you have do you have a target that you're hoping for, something in the back of your mind? I know in my head it's $200 live cattle. Boy, that'd be exciting to see. What, what, are you, what are you watching for? What do you think is a possibility here with this market? Well, the, yeah, the possibilities in April futures, that's where most of our positioning is right now, and that's where we will be adding. And uh, April futures at 186.50 currently, uh, they will trade, in my opinion, far north of 200. All right. You heard it here, folks. April 24, Dennis, you're talking trading over 200. Did I get the facts right? Uh, yeah, that, that would be correct. And, uh, you know, June goes off today in just a few minutes, actually, or a couple of hours, and it looks to expire at an all-time high record price. Oh, man. Dennis, we've got this developing on the live side. We've got rain falling across the Corn Belt. I imagine that bullishness extends into the feeder cattle complex. Oh, yes, it does. Uh, there's uh, no reason to be shy about feeders uh, with the uh, situation in the corn uh, seemingly being resolved right now uh, with, with key and critical rains moving through the Corn Belt. Uh, we're looking at a, a wet forecast for the next uh, 13 to 15 days uh, just ahead of pollination uh, of the entire Corn Belt. Uh, so the, the outlook for feeders is definitely higher. There is a lot of optimism here across the entire protein spectrum. Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services has been tracking with us. We'll continue to get Dennis's thoughts as this cattle market looks like it could run for another quite a while. Dennis Smith, thanks for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And folks, stick around. Jeff Johnston, tech economist with Kobach, will be joining us next. We'll talk about the impact of USDA's recent spending on rural internet. Leave it here for more AOA in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, looking at the markets on Friday ahead of USDA's quarterly grain stocks and acreage reports, we see that the grain market rallying a bit led by a strong soy complex, beans, bean meal, bean oil. There's been some chatter in recent days that China might be back in the market to buy U.S. soybeans. We did see confirmation of that on Friday morning as private exporters reported a sale of 132,000 metric tons of new crop soybeans to China. So that could 
could also be helping to buoy this soy complex a little bit. Now we look here at the weather situation. We got very beneficial rains Thursday across areas of the Corn Belt that needed it most from eastern Nebraska through southern Iowa, northern Missouri, into central Illinois, and into Indiana. However, that came with severe weather as a derecho moved through parts of central Illinois, causing some damage. So that is something that will have to be assessed by traders. We're seeing more rain move across some of those same areas here on Friday as well. This market, though, has had a lot of bearishness with the forecast uh, rainfall here throughout much of the week and now traders may be adding a little bit of premium back in as we jockey for position ahead of the USDA reports and these reports can be volatile they are known for surprises it's also end of the month and end of the quarter that could lead to added volatility in the markets as well personal income rose 0.4 percent month on month in May up from 0.3 percent the previous month meantime in livestock hogs seeing some spread unwinding action there after a quarterly hogs and pigs report that was a little surprising to the trade cattle markets are quietly mixed as we work through friday's session this is aoa for the american ag network i'm jesse allen Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here on AOA. Hopefully a lot of you are listening to us over the air, tuning to our trusted friends on AM and FM radio, but some of you might be tuning in via the podcast. And if you are, you are well aware of how important rural broadband is here across the internet, or excuse me, across the country. This past week, I saw a very interesting headline, and I thought it was worth digging into. USDA has announced they are rolling out $714 million in grants and loans to help promote rural broadband. And I thought, you know, it's been a while since we dug into the state of rural broadband. So joining us today is Jeff Johnston. He's the lead communications economist with CoBank, covers the issues covering rural broadband, and he joins us here today. Jeff, thanks for making the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's jump in to this $714 million in announcements. Jeff, where is the USDA getting this money from? So this money is appropriated from Congress. Um, so that's that's where the money's coming from. And as you mentioned, it's in the form of of grants and loans. So a little over half of the seven hundred and fourteen million is going to be coming in the form of grants. And then, of course, the rest will be in the form of of loans. So it's great. It's an exciting program. It's a part of the USDA's Reconnect program that's been in place for for a number of years now. And this latest sort of tranche of money, if you will, um, is expected to address over 83,000 unserved or underserved folks living in rural America. So a nice a nice step in the right direction. That is a step in the right direction. But my goodness, Jeff, there's 350 some million Americans and it takes 700 million to get 83,000 of them broadband. How do the economics work on this? Well, it's tough, right? I mean, in in sparsely populated towns in rural America, uh, the economics of running a broadband business day to day 
in and of themselves, sort of as a standalone basis, simply don't work. I mean, it, to your point, it's it's very expensive to string fiber along utility poles and to connect the unserved and sparsely populated towns. So that's why we need the federal government to step in to not only help pay for the capital required to build the network, but there also needs to be mechanisms in place to help ongoing operating expense support as well. Because just once it's built, if you don't have ongoing support, you know, it's not going to cash flow that network and you're going to run into issues down the road. So, yes, it is very expensive. But the nice thing is there's bipartisan support to make sure that those living in rural America that are not connected get connected. And, Jeff, I think it's worth noting that the feds have gotten active. I think back to the beginning uh, parts of the coronavirus pandemic, we had the uh, the Investment and Jobs Act. I understand that rolled a ton of money into infrastructure. Did that change rural broadband financing? Mike, that was an unprecedented amount of money that has been allocated uh, to rural broadband from Congress. As a matter of fact, there was uh, there's $42.5 billion dollars as a part of the Investment Jobs Act, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, that is specifically for building networks in unserved and underserved parts of rural America. We have never, ever seen anything close to that out of the federal government in terms of support for rural broadband. So very exciting time. Uh, we're in the very early innings, if you will, to use a baseball analogy as to when this money gets rolled out. But um, it should have a profound impact for those living in rural America. Well, let's follow along on this baseball analogy a little bit, Jeff. We're in the first couple of innings. We've got this tranche of tranche of money, several of them coming from the federal government. But as you mentioned, it takes time to get the boots on the ground and the, the wires on the poles and all of that. What does the rollout for this amount of federal dollars look like? Are, are you expecting it to take five years or more for all of this money to have a home in new projects? Yeah, it's, it's going to take time, Mike. Um, uh, we are... So, so the government's gone about this in a different fashion, and I think that it's actually a good thing the way they've, they're rolling out this BEAD program. So in programs past, in FCC-managed uh, programs in the past, all of the money was doled out to operators through various USF programs in the FCC at the federal level. Okay, So the federal FCC, the Federal uh, Communications Commission, was responsible for allocating those dollars. This is a little bit different this time. The, the, the federal agency controlling this particular BEAD program is through the NTIA, but the NTIA is working very closely with the states. And they're going to be allocating money to the states, which they're in the process of doing. And then from there, the states will have to have their own broadband grant and loan processes put in place to allocate to operators in their communities. Now, that may sound a little bit more cumbersome and maybe not as streamlined as what the FCC has done in the past or the federal government has done in the past. And there's certainly some truth to that. However, I do believe that involving the states in this fashion will actually be more effective in the long run. So it may be a little bit more cumbersome up front from a process perspective, but longer term, I think it's going to be much more effective because the states have you know, they have much more intimate knowledge about where there is and isn't coverage in rural America. So I think they'll be more effective in allocating dollars to operators in those areas to ensure that we're uh, we're addressing the underserved in an effective manner. Okay, that makes sense. It's all about getting those pieces in order and making sure that the right boxes are checked. Jeff, as we get into these projects, of course, we're talking taxpayer dollars going out into the countryside. From your perspective, as somebody who looks at communication trends, are, are we investing in the most impactful things in rural America with these federal dollars so far? So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, from a broadband perspective, <clears throat> is a, I would consider it a fiber first strategy, meaning that there's certain speed requirements that the federal government is going to require uh, operators deploy in order to, and to get some of these, to get these dollars. And, and, and the fiber first strategy, I think is a good strategy because, you know, not getting into the nuances too much, but, you know, a lot of people, think about fiber as a future-proof technology, right? So if you think about the different applications that we use over our broadband networks at home, and if we look at how that's evolved over the last 10, 20 years, a significant amount of data are going over these networks, and that is increasing 
exponentially year over year. So it's important that we build networks today with federal dollars that are going to be able to handle the applications of tomorrow. Right. So if you look at like chat GPT, which a lot of people are talking about, these artificial intelligence applications, these applications are going to generate a significant amount of data traffic and require a lot of computing resources. So it's important that we're building networks that can handle applications like that and many more to come that are going to demand high speed, high bandwidth networks. So that fiber first strategy that the federal government has employed, I think is a good one. Now, the reality is, however, in some instances, it just doesn't make sense to deploy fiber to a farm or to a home because the cost associated with it just really don't justify the investment, even with federal subsidies. So there will be these what the FCC is determined, or sorry, the NTIA is determined as high cost and ultra high cost areas. And in those instances, operators will be able to deploy, you know, more cost-friendly applications, more wireless-centric type applications that, you know, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll be they'll be good. Don't get me wrong. They're gonna, you're going to be able to watch Netflix and do Zoom calls over them and all that kind of stuff. But long-term, I mean, it remains to be seen, but they're not as ideal as a fiber-first strategy. Um, so, you know, but again, these are just some of the realities that we have to deal with in these high, ultra-high cost and high-cost areas. All right. Lots to discuss. Lots to come down the pipe here in communications. Jeff, as you look out over the rest of this year, of course, we've got a farm bill negotiation happening in Washington, D.C. Is rural broadband and communications, are they a component of the farm bill negotiations or would you expect these to be other bills elsewhere? Yeah, I think there's a chance that there could be rural, do rural broadband dollars in the farm bill, I think that absolutely remains to be seen at this point. So I certainly wouldn't want to sort of hang my hat on that at this point in time. But I, I think when we when we, when we think about federal broadband dollars, um, we, it, it's really right now the the bead program, right? So that forty two point five billion dollars that uh, that's a part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. I mean, that's really the meat and potatoes of what we're dealing with right now, uh, what the states are dealing with, what uh, you know, what broadband operators are looking forward to and cooperatives. So that's really, you know, really what we're dealing with right now. There could be additional FCC programs uh, that we've seen in the past uh, be implemented. But this $42.5 billion, Mike, again, this is an unprecedented amount of money that has been put towards uh, uh, bridging the digital divide. So it, so there, there's a lot of wood to chop as it relates to that money for the foreseeable future. Lots of wood to chop indeed. Folks, we've been talking with Jeff Johnston. He's the lead telecommunications economist there with CoBank, does a lot of writing on these issues and the funding for this sort of stuff is only going to, I imagine, increase as we get deeper into this congressional cycle and the need for that digital connectivity across the country continues to grow. To keep up with Jeff's writing, you can visit their website. That's the CoBank Knowledge exchange check out cobank.com slash knowledge dash exchange all right before we go take a break though for a minute we talked yesterday about the call from the epa to say that they are going to revise their wotus waters of the u.s rule by September 1st. This is following that decision that went against the U.S. EPA in the Sackett case in the Supreme Court here at the tail end of May. Ag groups, construction groups, mining groups all have come forward and they have still told the EPA that September 1st is too long to wait. They had known for quite some time that these changes to WOTUS might be possible under this Supreme Court of the U.S. And these groups have come together to say that the uh, Biden administration needs to scrap their old WOTUS rule entirely and that these agencies agencies need to promulgate a new rule within 45 days. Now, the Biden administration hasn't responded to that. We'll be watching this issue as it gets pushed further, looking ahead. And folks, leave it here. We'll have more AOA coming up in just a moment. We're going to dig in to some recently released growth forecasts for the economy of the United States of America. Leave it right here for more AOA in just a minute. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. 
Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Brian Cool, CEO of Progressive Agriculture Foundation, about how to keep kids safe on the farm. Brian, if you would, what is the mission of the Progressive Agriculture Foundation? The Progressive Agriculture Foundation was formed about 30 years ago, really with the focus to bringing education, training, and resources to make children's lives safer and healthier, both on the farm in their homes, but also throughout their rural communities. So Brian, if you would, what are some tips to keep kids safe on the farm? Well, first and foremost, it needs to start with us as adults. We need to be role modeling safety behaviors, those behaviors that we want our children to be practicing every time that they are not just on the farm, but also participating in the operation. Our children are gonna pick up on that. They're going to see that when we ride our ATVs, we wear helmets. When we operate our tractors, we use rollover protection. We wear our seatbelts. We don't go into grain bins when machinery is running. And I farm in Northwest Wisconsin. I understand there are times when we just need to get work done, but we need to be aware that when we cut those corners, when we maybe skirt around the topics of safety practices, our children can pick up on that and feel that, well, if mom or dad or other adults in their life, if it's okay for them to do that, it's also okay for me to do that. And I think as a parent, as an adult in a farming operation, that's not what we want our children to be doing. Brian, what resources are out there to help kids stay safe? I would really look to extension educators, 4-H, FFA. This is the time of year when they start to have more and more safety training and certification opportunities throughout rural America. Folks, we've been talking with Brian Cool, CEO of the Progressive Agriculture Foundation. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Mike. Make every day a safety day. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, we are reporting here AOA before the USDA releases releases at 11 a.m. Central Time their quarterly stocks data and acreage update. So the market has more on its mind this morning than just the rain and the derecho that came through the central part of the U.S. on Thursday. Market so far still in the green. Corn has given back a lot of its overnight gains. We got the December contract currently up just a penny right now. Beans still holding on to a lot of their overnight gains. November beans currently up 21 and a half cents. Old crop August up 24 and three quarters here in trading ahead of the USDA reports. Reuters analyst Karen Braun has been compiling analyst expectations for both USDA reports to come out later on today. With regard to planted acres, traders aren't expecting any big changes. Karen reports that the average trade guess is for corn acreage to come in just shy of 92 million acres. Average estimate is 91.85 3 million corn acres. That's right in line with uh, what the USDA published at their prospective plantings report back in March. They said 91.996 acres. No major change expected on the corn side. So a similar story, USDA back in March said we're likely going to see 87 and a half million acres. Trade today largely expected to agree 87.673 million acres expected on the soy side. Wheat, uh, basically analysts right in line with uh, all wheat expectations. Prospective plantings had it at 49.85 million acres. Analysts today expect to see 49.65 million acres going into that wheat category. With regard to the quarterly grain stocks, this is where we have seen USDA surprise the trade in the past. We do have a pretty good sized range of corn stock expectations. Traders are watching for between 4 billion and 4.4 billion of bushels of corn here on stockpiles across the United States. That average estimate is 4. 2.255 billion. Soybeans, similar story, little tighter range. They're expecting between 750 and 920, 920 million bushels of soy. Stockpiles just one year ago, or excuse me, back in March, rather, were at 1.685 billion. And there, traders are expecting to see this June 1st average come in just about 812 million bushels of soy on hand. That wheat number expected to come in uh, considerably uh, in line with the trade expectations of 611 million bushels of wheat. Again, that report will be coming out from the USDA here at 11 a.m. Central Time. That is while the trade is active, which is another reason these reports can move the markets in a big way if the trade is not expecting some of the USDA's numbers. Looking out across the world, we heard earlier on the program from Dennis Smith, the challenges created by California's move to Proposition 12, that is, the move in California forbidding pork to be sold in that state unless it comes from hogs raised not in farrowing crates. They've got to have enough room to turn around 24 square feet is the rule for breeding stock in pork selling into California. Now, that rule was upheld by the Supreme Court earlier this year. The state of California has said they're going to hold back on enforcement of that rule until December of this year, but enforcement is expected to move ahead. Now, the fact that the Supreme Court greenlit this rule back in May means that now other states have a template if they'd like to do a similar sort of move in their own borders. The first state outside of Massachusetts, which does have a question three pending on the books, could impact uh, the, way, the way hogs are sold or pork is sold in that state down the line, the newest state to propose one of these regulatory changes is New Jersey. New Jersey lawmakers earlier this week have approved a ban on gestation crates. The bill coming through New Jersey looks very, very similar to the bill that passed in California. A lot of the same folks who pushed that in California have been on the ground in New Jersey working to ban gestation crate metal enclosures. Now, it's worth noting uh, that it this bill is expected to move forward. It has been approved by both the House and Senate there in New Jersey. It does require the New Jersey Department of Ag to adopt some new regulations requiring pork producers in the state, or excuse me, requiring pork produced in the state to come from pigs whose mothers were raised with at least 24 square feet of space. Now, that is the big difference. This would apply to New Jersey pork producers as well. Now, this legislation, when we talk about the public's perception of rules like this, rules like limiting the use of gestation stalls for uh, for sow housing, 
This legislation is supported by 93% of New Jersey residents, according to recent polling. We see similar numbers, very strong majorities in support of these kind of rules in states like California and in Massachusetts. I think the odds that we're going to see more political guidance in the type of activity that farmers can do, I think that's going to continue to grow. It is expected uh, that New Jersey's uh, governor will be signing this piece of legislation, if not today, then early next week, no doubt tying it in to the barbecue season here at the 4th of July holiday. Some good news from U.S. jobless claims. The biggest drop in new unemployment claims in 20 months here this week. Ongoing proof that the labor market is strong. Uh, this is the most we've seen, uh, the biggest drop we've seen, as I mentioned, in 20 months. This is another sign that the economy is resilient. Earlier this month, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said he was going to put the brakes on interest rate hikes at least temporarily, but he highlighted the fact that the economy does still, according to most of the metrics, appear to be performing very, very well. And labor strength is one of those key metrics that Powell is using to judge the state of the recovery following pandemic. And he has said repeatedly that if this labor market stays hot, that is one of the key tech, key benchmarks they'll be using in whether or not they think it's worth hiking interest rates again down the line. The fact that the, uh, the unemployment claims dropped so severely definitely could add some, some more evidence to Powell's idea that these rates are going to have to go back up. Yesterday, he mentioned in front of the Bank of Spain that he anticipates two further Fed funds rate hikes here before the end of the year. And the important thing was he didn't say only two. He said potentially two or more. He still has a very hawkish attitude with regard to the inflation that has, has become sort of ingrained in the economy. Powell doesn't believe we have crossed that bridge quite yet. Just a reminder, everybody, Monday, the markets are open. It is July 3rd. AOA will be back. We'll be talking with Darren Newsom, John Baranek, and Jackie Fatka. will have an update for us on policy with regard to alternative meats in Washington, D.C. Tune in next time to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Why do you listen? I typically listen here at work, from my desk, on my way to work, in the morning. When we wake up, it goes on the radio. I can hear a song and be instantly transported back to a time in my life that I enjoy remembering. I think that's what I like listening to radio for, is just to stay informed on whether it's news, sports, new music, anything. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.